This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Lucas and I today are very lucky to have the one and only Frank Casey. Frank Casey's name is not as famous as it should be, but it's famous in my Rolodex. Uh, one of the reasons is because Frank is featured in my book, Transforming Wall Street, as one of the Wall Street 50, and his story is one of the most riveting stories you'll ever hear. Of all the people I interviewed in my book, Frank's interviews with me were the longest, over six hours. I got to talk to Frank about how he and other two and three intrepid men stopped Bernie Madoff. Why do I have Frank here today? I have him here because his educational background, his experience is legion, which we'll talk about in addition to that, uh, how he stopped, you know, the man who created a $50 billion Ponzi scheme, even though the government and all the powers that be would not listen to him. But we also are going to learn so much about how you navigate the finance world. And that's why I have Frank here today. So I have more to say about you, Frank, but welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you very much, Kim Ann. And uh, let's clarify a few things. If not famous, maybe I'm infamous. And uh, second of all, um, you give an, I'm an Irishman an open microphone. It's going to be six hours, so be careful. <laughs> an Irish woman myself, I can attest that that is true for all of us Irish. We can tell a story. We can yeah, tell a story. Yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. So, so of course, too, uh, Frank. You know, I, I don't want to ignore just some of what you've also done in addition to what has to be just one of the most incredible stories about bringing Madoff down. But you, I want to also speak to him being really an early innovator in nascent energy and financial futures derivative markets. 45 years uh, in derivatives uh, also has navigated all the risks banks take on. He's built a hedge fund tenfold to two billion in six years. Of course, now he is a fraud expert um, and he's focused currently on cybersecurity, disruptive innovation, and trust crime forensics. So tell, tell us a little bit about what you're up to now, and then you know we'll dive into some of the magic uh, that brought us together. Okay, Kim. Yeah, I'm shifting, I'm reinventing myself, let's say. Uh, here I am, uh, just about 74 in a month. Um, and I started in this business reinventing myself from being a military officer. Uh, I was going to be career military. And uh, back in the days of Vietnam, um, uh, we were prepared to be officers. And uh, I trained with the best to be the best and to save lives, not only mine, but my troops. And I never did serve in Vietnam, but uh, I was trained by special forces uh, individuals when I was in college in ROTC. I was their elected leader uh, in their ranger unit. We still get together, the rangers, uh, the ROTC rangers. If I'm Penn State, we still get together and 
drink beer and tell lies up in the mountains once a year. And, um, and uh, so, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. We're all falling out of shape now. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the, the mind's still there. Um, I did go Airborne Ranger, and, uh, which is very elite in the military, and uh, was going to be a career military officer, uh, made captain after four years in the infantry, and uh, decided to leave to get into finance. And so I was what they call a regular army officer, which means that I was unionized, basically. You couldn't fire me unless I really screwed up. And so um, when they downsized the military, I, I was in a protected position. And to give up your career uh, and resign your commission uh, was just unfathomable to most people in the military. But I did it because Merrill Lynch had run a, a one-page ad. Now imagine this, in the bottom of the 74 bear market, from 69 to 74, probably 50% of the stockbrokers in the United States got wiped out, okay? And Merrill Lynch opens up, a, a, a does a full one-page ad, uh, a full-page ad in the New York Times, Sunday edition. And I'm sitting in my bachelor officer's quarters as being reassigned from Germany to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, to join special forces. And uh, I pick up the times and I start looking at it. And basically it said, if you qualify and we hire you at Merrill Lynch uh, and you last uh, three years, we'll put you in the top one-tenth of one percent of the earning power of the United States. Wow. Charge that hill or go work for Mother Merrill. I think I'll work for Mother Merrill. So <laughs> I quit <laughs> the military and took the gambit. And, um, and when I joined the firm in 74, uh, we had the uh, third largest office in the, in the system in Boston. And I asked some of the older people uh, out of the 70 people in the office, I said um, to one of the oldest ones, I said, hey, what what's it like here? And he says, well, let me show you a ledger. And he put, took a ledger out of his, his desk and he was laughing and he had a whole bunch of names, 70 names on it. And they said, these are all the recruits that we've brought into the firm over the last three years and have fired. 70 out of 70, hundred percent turnover. And I said, oh my God, I got to figure out something that's going to differentiate myself because I can't sell, you know, um, uh, ice to the Eskimos. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm not that good of a sales guy. So the options market just started trading on equities. I mean, it used to be the over-the-counter market back in the old days, and some of your traders will understand that. But the it became a listed on, uh, item on an exchange, and everything was standardized except for price. So uh, uh, in either case, I made myself a de facto options expert at Merrill Lynch, self-declared. <laughs> I studied everything I could get my hands on. They put together a magazine called Options Alert to educate their brokers, brokers and their clients. I got on that editorial board. I did the commercial for Merrill Lynch internally. Um, they had a film studio that was probably would rival ABC or NBC. I mean, it was just an amazing experience. I'd fly down to New York from Boston. They'd put me on a helicopter and fly me to Wall Street. I mean, the ego was just so big for a guy that was making zero money. Because when I joined Merrill Lynch, uh, they said, you know what, Frank, you don't know how to sell, so we're not gonna pay you anything. And I said, okay, fine, I'll work here for free for three months. And then you tell me what you think I'm worth. Wow. And so uh, they came around three months later and said, what do you want? And I said, I don't know, what's a, what's a minimum salary that you know? I don't care, I'm gonna be working on commission. So I built a business, but I became an expert in uh, equity options. 
And then uh, I, I, I wrote a paper, a two-pager, three-pager, I can't remember, to the uh, regional director on the East Coast. And I said, listen, there's a big wave of inflation coming, and uh, you better start a commodity trading operation to hedge corporate risk. And they said, wow, we've tried that three times and never been successful. I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And so I gave up my book of business and uh, started over again in, 19, in November of 78. And, uh, and uh, started the regional trade units, which I named, and we hired six brokers and we started prospecting. And my first account was Digital Corporation, which was a computer company and hedging um, the price of gold, which they used in solution form for the conductivity and corrosive resistance of those uh, printed circuit boards. And so in either case, I then got into energy markets. It was the beginning of the energy markets. I mean, I started trading heating oil back in 19... Uh, 78, it became 90% of my book. I, I taught uh, oil companies how to hedge and arbitrage. I was arbitraging at four in the morning between London and New York uh, on the oil markets. And I was having a blast, one phone in each year and, you know, the hello, London, buy Chicago, sell. And so I was having a blast and um, at total risk. I mean, you know, it, it, it had stresses on the family life. And I was married at 19, had a kid before I was 20. I was, I was a rebel. I was kicked out of the house at 19. So uh, I, I always worked 40 hours a week minimum all through my four years of college, and I was in the ROTC and everything else. So I had to learn to become extremely efficient um, at my time allocation and my use of pe uh, people. And I used to bartend, basically, because that was my, uh, uh, my social life in those days at Penn State. But in either case, um, I... Uh, Moved uh, again and reinvented myself in 1982. Um, Merrill Lynch was slow on the pickup of, of bank risk management, and I got job offers from the uh, chairman, uh, chairmen of uh, Bear Stearns and, and Prudential Beige. And so I took a, a leap and went to Prudential Beige and started bank risk management, starved to death for two years, and um, learning that market. And uh, there was no bank risk management in those days. I mean, there was no hedging operations. So I started using options on treasury bond and treasury note futures contracts to hedge mortgage bank origination at mortgage banks. And so I was three derivatives removed from the underlying because the <laughs> banks were writing naked puts. When they gave you a rate lock, you, you went in and you say, hey, I, uh, I want to get a mortgage. They say, okay, we guarantee 8%. Uh, for 90 days while we, you know, you go through the application process and of course if rates went up, uh, you, you did the deal as the consumer. If rates went down, you said, well, screw that. I have no money in the deal. You go to the next bank and you got it down at seven and a half. So they were writing naked puts on the, uh, uh, and uh, they were being put the, the deal to them when it was not a good timing. And so I taught the banks how to hedge that risk. I became uh, a senior vice president. I, I made a lot of money, uh, and um, and uh, in in one month in March of 1987, the bond markets cratered, and uh, I was buying and selling a billion at a whack face value, and uh, in fast markets, and uh, I made more. I paid more in taxes, and and that paycheck in April, than I made you know in income the next three years in a row. Uh, cumulatively. So, I mean, uh, you have these ups and downs. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is what people should do, 
<laughs> but your trading community will understand it because even if they are risk adverse and very diligent at trading, and I, I did study trading uh, for years, and I can get into that a little bit, but um, uh, you tend to go through hot periods and cold periods, and so I am a personality that was special operations designated for the military. Yes. And of course, where did I gravitate to? Uh, special operations and finance. And so I was over on the other side of the ledger. Instead of an M16, I was carrying a, uh, you know, uh, a, a trading record. And so uh, in either case, um, I, as long as I could keep innovating, I was okay. Yes. I then uh, saw I had a down period uh, where my bank got merged out in a period of about six months. I mean, I couldn't believe I lost my top three clients by takeover. And so, um, you know, even though one of the new acquiring presidents uh, said, uh, well, what is it you do? And he spent four hours with me and he says, ah, I don't need to do this. I said, let me tell you something. You don't do this. You personally will be fired as the chairman of this bank in one year and your bank will be sold within two. And he laughed. He was gone in one and the bank was sold too. So, I mean, uh, sometimes you shouldn't uh, laugh at a trader. <laughs> but uh, in either case, uh, the bottom line was I reinvented myself again. And, um, and, and, and it's not a smooth transition. I mean, there are a lot of lumpy periods here. And um, during that period, by the way, I, well, let me just tell you where I went. I land up on shifting from the, uh, the, the, what they call the sell side of the business to the buy side of the business. I landed up working for Rampart Investment Management, and uh, they, we ran $8.5 in options uh, overlays for big pension plans. That's where I met Harry Markopoulos, and I started building structured financial product, used optionality uh, embedded in these things to broaden our array of offerings. And, um, and so I was out proselytizing uh, to insurance companies and, and, and the uber wealthy on structured financial notes that basically had a variable coupon tied to hedge fund returns, but they couldn't lose their principal because I had banks underwriting a premium, which I paid basically to put it to them. So I'm protected. So uh, my clients were protected. Pretty es esoteric out in the weeds stuff, but um, that's how I found Bernie Madoff because Bernie, uh, I wanted to go chase this rich Frenchman uh, who lived in New York, Therese Magon de la Villiger, and Therese said, hey, you're an options geek. He said, uh, you know, I've got a secret manager that uh, is using something in the options and I can't figure it out. And I said, well, show me what he does. And he blanked out the name of the firm on the top because he had the, the manager had to be secret. And in the days of early days of Madoff, Bernie Madoff, he ran that business as a sidebar to his real business, which was uh, market making, trading, block trading. And that was a legitimate business function. Of course, he was, he innovated the actual NASDAQ computer matching of buy and sell orders and became the chairman of NASDAQ. So he was a genius in that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he was running this secret business on the side. So if you told anybody that you were invested with Bernie, he would fire you as a client and he would not, not pay you your 1% per month, like clockwork. And so I was looking at this and I, you know, Therese showed me pieces of paper 
and it's like buy a thousand IBM, sell a, a, an OEX call and buy an OEX put and all these different types of index type hedges against individual stock positions. And of course, you've got cross-correlation, idiosyncratic risk in that. And I couldn't understand what this guy was doing. And, and Thierry says, well, it's something very complicated, split strike conversion. Well, I was doing that in 1975. And here it is, the spring of 1991. I mean, I knew what it didn't do. And it wasn't my genius developing that strategy, by the way. I had a 20, I had tremendous luck. I, I declared myself an options expert. I read everything about it and I had no clients. So I had this, uh, I was trying to get a client or two. And lo and behold, in Boston, the, this client potential prospect walks in and he says to the boss, I'm 24 year, years old. I have a PhD in mathematics from MIT, and I'm very, very wealthy, and I'm from the Midwest, and I want to trade equity options. And I've got my own home computer. A home computer in those days came in, looked like a four-drawer filing cabinet. It was called a digital um, PDP-11, and he literally lived around the corner from the Ritz, and we would go over there and program at night. He did the programming. I didn't, I'm not a math geek. But uh, I would do a data dump of all my vast knowledge of six months uh, about the options market, and we would come up with strategies, and we were doing covered calls, you know, buy the stock, write the call at the money or out of the money, away from the stock, 10 to 15%. We were buying, and then we realized, oh, markets go down, so we better buy puts. Well, there you go into the split strike conversion. You sell, you buy a stock at 100, let's say, you sell a 115 or 120 call, uh, and they pay you a point and a quarter for that, or a point and an eighth, and then uh, for three months out, and then you uh, buy a put, uh, also 15% under the money at 85. And so you, the put costs a little bit more than the call because of technical things like skew. But in either case, what it, what it means is the income is going out the door and paid premium. So you're left with this stock at 100. The only way you make money is if that stock goes up. And here's this secret manager basically saying, I'm going to take 30 to 35 of the biggest stocks out of the top 100 biggest stocks in the market. And they correlate the index and these individual groupings of 30 or 35 stocks correlate about 98% to one another. And the day that I buy these 30, 35 stocks, they're no longer going to correlate because if the market goes down, I don't go down because I'm hedged. Well, that's a bunch of bull because you got a 15% variance either side of the market. So if the market drops 15%, guess what? You're down 15%. And, and you didn't make enough on your put. You just break even at that point. So I knew the whole thing was bogus instantly. And in that and, moment, you didn't even know who it was, right? No, 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 no. But, but I did something that came in. I did something a little untoward. Uh, he took me into the back office, Terry, and he was, he, he was having clerks. He had three clerks. And they were typing into a computer, looking at these transcripts, these daily pieces of paper that he was getting on these trades. And they putting them into a computer. And I said, well, Terry, what are you, what are you doing this for? He says, I'll be honest with you. He says, I want to make sure that my clients get everything they're entitled to. So I want to make sure on the monthly statements, and I compare my runs on the computer here to the monthly statements to make sure they don't screw up. 
And the second thing, he says, I'm trying to reverse engineer because this guy's uncanny. He buys before the market goes up and he sells before the market goes down. I've never seen him wrong. And I said, bullshit. Did you say that out loud? No, to myself, but I should have said it out loud. But what I did do is when Therese turned around to give orders to somebody, I spun a piece of paper on a clerk's desk so I could see the name. It's cheating, but it said Bernard Madoff Securities. I didn't even know who the guy was because I come from the derivatives world. And so Bernie Madoff was big as the chairman of the NASDAQ and everything, but I made sure I knew who he was before I left. And so I said to Therese, I said, hey, if I could design a strategy using options, I mean, you're apparently investing in an options manager. And I said, by the way, these three clerks are doing you nothing. I would fire them right now. I mean, they, you know, I'm sure they're nice people, but they're doing nothing for you. I said, you'd be better off hiring one guy once a month to come in and look at the trades on the monthly statement and see if any of the pricing is out of the actual range of trading on any given day. Do spot checks. That's the only way you're going to find if it's a fraud or not. I said, because what you're doing and you're telling me, I said, well, wait a minute. If I was running this strategy, I'd be charging you 1% plus maybe a fifth of the profits because it's a hedge fund strategy. I said, uh, what do you charge? He goes, oh, no, this secret manager does this ancillary to his regular business. He's happy with the commissions. Well, first of all, they don't charge commissions when they're market makers, but it doesn't matter. So, I mean, he had some technical advantage, supposedly, the secret manager. I said, well, who's getting the one and, 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 and 20? He says, well, I charge the one and 20. He smiles. And I said, well, where are you getting your clients? He says, I give a retro session to the private banks in France and Italy and Spain and, 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 and Switzerland. I said, retro session must mean, must be French for kickback, right? I mean, this is basically what you're telling me. So you're giving them a kickback. And he goes, well, yes. And I said, fine. And he says, and they're bringing you the clients. And he goes, yes. And I said, and then I invest with the secret manager. I said, sounds like a pretty damn good idea. I think that's called a feeder fund. And it's, it's legitimate. But, you know, you got to be careful, Terry. I, you know, I, I smell rat here. And uh, it doesn't jive. I said, but listen, if I, if I come up with a competing strategy, would you give me some of your money? He says, oh, absolutely. I need to diversify. This is the spring of 99. I said, how much money do you have with the secret manager? He says, $320 million. Now, let me put that into perspective. In those days, if you're an allocator, pension fund, money manager, of managers, it doesn't matter what, just like your traders. The trader, a good trader, doesn't put 100% of their book down on one trade, right? They put 5 or 10% book down. And the same thing with allocators. They don't normally put down more than 10% of whatever the manager's already running. So if they're running $100 million, they might give them $10 million. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of the risk of a blow-up and you don't want to be painted on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that you own a big piece of that guy's butt when he went down the tubes, right? Because you're fired. And so uh, you don't get to run uh, the pension fund of XYZ any longer. So they, I just took $320 million and multiplied by 10. That's $3.2 billion. And then I said, well, let's put that into perspective. The biggest hedge fund managers in the world at that time, the Soros's, the Trouts, the Tewksbury's, they were running $2 billion or less. 
So now you've got a guy that's running three billion plus, that's a secret manager, using a strategy that makes absolutely no sense to an options guy. Something smells. This is a fraud. So I knew it was a fraud, but I took it back to my bosses in Boston, and they said, oh, this is exciting. You can get inside into, uh, you know, we're running $8 billion plus. We can get into the big banks in Europe and the private wealth management arenas. And I said, oh, absolutely, but I've got to come up with a competing product. And let me tell you, this guy's bullshit because he's not doing what he says he's doing. I don't know what he's doing, but, you know, I've got to compete with this guy. They said, well, let's take it down to Harry. He's a, a math geek. And Harry Markopoulos and I, when he first met me, he didn't really like me because he doesn't like sales guys, you know. I mean, these, these purist math geeks. And, <laughs> um, and so uh, he was a, a forensic accountant and a math geek and a derivatives expert. I mean, Harry's a mind. I mean, we can go into Harry later, but <laughs> Harry's a mind. And, um, and so I take it to Harry, and I swear to God, this is no exaggeration. He's standing there with the bosses, and he's looking at this piece of paper with the monthly returns coming off of Therese's account over the history of a couple of years. He goes, Frank, come on, you're an options guy. You know this is bullshit. I said, well, of course it's bullshit, but what is it? He says, I'm not reverse engineering it. It's a fraud on the, at the face of it, and he's probably a Ponzi scheme. I said, oh, don't use that word Ponzi. He says, why is that? I said, this guy's the chairman of the NASDAQ. And I said, he's a big dog on Wall Street. You don't call this guy a fraud, let alone a Ponzi scheme, without having some facts because we're going to get our butts fired and then a ringer will be sued. And so I, he says, well, go. I want to take it to the SEC so we get more information. So I did. And uh, just to wrap up that end of the story, um, about six, nine months later, I got a phone call unsolicited from a wealthy family from the uh, Carolinas, and they had sold a family business, multi-generational, and they called me up and they, they said, hey, we're going to be in New York City. We're staying at the Swiss Hotel, Manhattan. Do you, would you please jump on down and see us? You know, I don't need much more of an invite than that, you know. Right. You got money? Okay, yeah, I'm on the <laughs> So, so uh, I go down there and they have these low-slung tables there with these, these hassocks that sit around in the lobby. So they we're all sitting on one of these little cocktail tables, uh, coffee tables, and on these hassocks. And uh, they tell me what they're doing, and they show me the big prospectus. You know, the prospectus is 70, 75 pages long. Now, if anybody hasn't read a prospectus, this is what it basically says for all your students out there. A prospectus is normally 70 to 100 pages long, written by lawyers for the manager that says the manager can do anything to anybody, anytime, anywhere in the world, using any instrument. That's what a prospectus says, right there. It's written for the manager's protection, not for the client. So what you do is you just skip the whole thing. You can take that whole section called disclosed risk and throw it in the trash because it's all been lawyered up. So what you do is you go right to the back of it, and he had two managers that they've allocated to uh, with their fortune so far. Manager A, unnamed, was an also ran using an option strategy. That I understood. Manager B was moving from the lower left to the upper right on a 45-degree angle of return with zero downside blips. And I said, Manager B, oh, Bernie Madoff, who told you, they said. I said, don't worry about who told me. They said, don't tell anybody we told you. And I said, I know, I know, if the word gets out, he'll fire you as clients, you won't get your money back. 
can you use this guy and our investments? How long have you been investing? I asked. They had about five years. Yeah. I said, well, that's bigger than, than in my mind than Thera. So uh, I'll go take this back to Harry. I said, oh, sure. Let me have a, a look at this thing. I'll put it inside, my, inside of my structured notes if it's worthy. And so with that, I brought it back to Harry. He says, okay, fine. We're going to model it now that I've got these returns to benchmark against. And he created a model. You basically randomly take 25 to 35 stocks on any given moment from the top 100 stocks. You write some calls, you buy some puts, and you run it, Monte Carlo simulations, you run it every way possible. Bottom line, he comes back to me a couple hours later, about four hours later, and he says, Frank, you wanna know what it produced? I said, I sure do. And he says, the treasury bill rate of return. And T-bills weren't earning 1% a month. No. And, 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 and in actuality, Madoff is delivering, had him deliver 16%, right? Because he was paying Thera 1% off the top at 1 in 20. So 16 minus 1 is 15, and 20% of 15 is another 3. So that's 4 off the top. That, that's 12, 1 a month. And so basically, Madoff's paying out 16 to 18% on the money. You, you better have a hell of an edge each one of your traders will know this, yeah. on a diversified portfolio of risk assumption to take on idiosyncratic risk and make yourself 18% per month or 16% a month. You've got to really have some inside. And I didn't see it. Harry didn't see it. He took it to the SEC. They didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And um, in Boston, and then they packaged it up and said, it, we're putting a letter on it. We're sending it to New York because Madoff's in New York's territory. That's their problem. You'll hear from them. We never did. And so then we shook hands because I wanted to, and Harry wanted to take Madoff down. It wasn't because he was probably running three to four billion, in dot, but we knew he was a cancer. But it wasn't from a social do-good point of view initially. I needed to get Therese McGon's de Villiers money. Yeah. And I couldn't get his money competing against the fraud. Because if I put up a number of 1%, Madoff just makes up his numbers, you know, put up one and a half. I mean, <laughs> I can't win. So I had to level the playing field. And the only way to level it was to take him down. And that's how it started. We did think we were going to get a reward if we proved our case. But after two weeks, we realized... There's no whistleblowing uh, rewards back in those days. So yeah. we would be wasting our time. Yes. So led the hunt for eight plus years. Exactly. And what I want to speak to is that while that may have been your original motive to, you know, get him out of the way, so to speak, and prove that he was a fraud for your own book of business, that is not what kept you in it for eight plus years. So no, no, we would have given up within two months because we knew we couldn't get paid. And exactly. uh, we knew that we weren't going to take them down because these people that were invested with them and we didn't know who was vested, uh, invested because they wouldn't say. So I had to go uh, out and prospect basically. And the way I did it, I would, I would meet you on, and in, in Switzerland, let's say at a conference on hedge funds, can and you'd be the risk manager for XYZ Bank. And we would be listening to some hedge fund managers spin their story. 
and you and I would have cocktails standing there. And I said, well, what do you think about XYZ over there? And he go, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. You know, I don't know. I'd say, well, what do you know about Bernie? And you would look at me, stop, and, and concentrate and wow. say, well, what do you know about Bernie? Exactly. <laughs> and I never had to use the man's last name anywhere in the world. Wow. Just Bernie. That was the power of this guy. So when we started digging, I got nervous because I'm saying this is one powerful dog on the street. And you know, I'm a hunter by act, by not physically. I, I couldn't kill an animal. I've never heard of human. I was never in combat, but um, I'm well trained to do so. But uh, in Germany, when I was 23 um, uh, and a military officer, I became battalion intelligence and assistant operations officer. Um, and um, the, the army came down and said, we got a bad drug problem. What can we do? And I, I sat there and thought about it. And I spent a year and a half in my top secret vault figuring out how to build frequency diagrams, perk diagrams on flows of visitation across my army barracks wow. and I then would map it out and I figured out who was moving drugs on cash and who was moving the drugs on credit to payday and then I went in with guns drawn and we busted and I got a conviction and uh, of the biggest drug dealer in the area so I have an instinct yes and so doing Madoff was just I never thought of it yeah but I have an innate ability, I don't know why. Yeah. And, and somebody asked me once, well, why is it that you were a military officer but you always questioned authority? I said, I always question everything. Uh, I question authority, I question religious leaders, I question everything, I question markets. Because a great trader one time taught me that good traders are seekers of the truth. Seekers of the truth in the markets, but more importantly, seekers of the truth in themselves. Because you cannot fool yourself, and the markets will definitely know your weaknesses. So you've got to figure out who you are before you can attack the markets. So, um, you know, I, in, 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 in hunting, I'm, I, I question, and therefore the, I, I just constantly rebel. I've always been a rebel in my whole life. So, I mean, that's... That's probably why I want more special operations than anything. Yeah. And for yourself and your, I think, you know, one of the things that to me is fascinating about your story is that in the face of a man being so well known, even by his first name internationally, and because he had been the chairman of NASDAQ, and because of his reputation and the players that were with him, it, it's such a incredible window into how stories and stories about people move the markets. So because our audience is, you know, primarily traders and of course investors, what, what is it that you would recommend to anybody when they're looking about, they're, they need to be self-aware. You've just spoken to that. What's another quality that helps them see or be conscious of when it's too good to be true or when everybody's doing it? That's the power of Madoff. It, everybody thought, well, the smartest people in the room are with him, in the world are with him. I, I want to be with him. What, what 
kept you from falling into that trap besides obviously the wisdom of seeing that it was a fraud? Well, my, fa my first wife says it's because I don't like people. But, uh, <laughs> 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 but <laughs> my second wife and her daughter say, yeah, no, 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 that's a, that's a misnomer. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what it is is um, one has to question your own reaction to things in order to self-evaluate not only risk assumption but what's going to make you happy in life right and so um it, it i don't want to get too much into the weeds here with uh, uh, the whole self-awareness thing but and by the way i did study uh, i won um a position to and i had to pay him but a full institutionalization with dr van tharp a neuro-linguistic programmer coach Trading coach. I read about him in uh, Jack Schwager's book, Market Wizards or the New Market Wizards. I can't remember which. Nope. But um, he was holding the competition, and I competed against 220 other individuals with trading systems. And they were out of Goldman and Merrill, and I mean, everywhere Lehman Brothers, Bear. And you had to have a real trading system. And I spent two years trying to develop one. Uh, but second of all, um, you had to be screwed up to some degree and enough to pay him money to could be fully institutionalized with 12 other guys and, and sitting in there and, uh, and divulging your system and having it torn about apart. And one of the things that we became the mantra of the group and maybe the end of the first week was no matter what anybody said, we all said, ah, it really doesn't matter. In other words, it really doesn't matter what your entry signal is. It really doesn't matter what your exit signal is. What matters is your risk assumption metric. Because I can prove to you that if I put together a bunch of traders in a room and randomly read out situations, and then we mapped the returns on those situations, even if they were winning 50% of the time, the guys, the men and women that have the risk assumptions tight win the game. And the objective is you have to make one and a half times what you lose. And you can win with a trading system that's producing 52% wins. Stop and think about it. So, I mean, you can tell me, because I've been around derivatives for so long, you could put me in a, uh, a situation with any hedge fund guy of any ilk, and I'll tell you in a short period of time whether they can produce alpha. And excess return for the amount of risk, not just by looking at the numbers, because the numbers in the case of Madoff were totally phony, and everybody was massaging metrics, you know, mathematical metrics on the risk assumptions and everything else, looking at totally phony numbers. One of the, uh, I'm, I'm off the track a little bit because you wanted to talk about what makes what's an important thing for traders to look at, what other than themselves. It's not the news, it's the reaction to the news. Use that metric right there. For instance, we had the FOMC meeting today, and, um, and so they said they're going to curtail, uh, they're going to taper faster than, in other words, they're going to stop buying so much and giving free lunches out to everybody. And, and the market, but we, we're going to have moderate rate hikes and down the road. So the market zoomed up off of a support zone. It'll be more important to me where it closes because 
If the market then fades into the close, that's a tell. If the market stays strong and then chops sideways for several hours and then starts moving up again, that's a tell. But it's not so important what the news is. It's where the reaction to the news takes you because that shows you where everybody's hand is already bet. Yeah. And so that's one of the things. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I've talked too much. No, no, it's 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 awesome, Lucas. I'll let you ask some questions if you have any. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I guess w one of the things uh, that that I want to know is if if you even know. But what do you think was driving uh, Bernie Madoff to? It, it, you know, he's seen a lot of success. He's continuing to have success. What is is there some something behind wanting to have even more? What do you think? I have not read the book, The Match King, but it had to do with the guy, he was a Swede, I believe, who developed the first self-striking matches back when the West needed matches that could strike on a rock or your zipper or your fly. And he wanted to be remain the king of the matches. And so he buried himself in a pyramid scheme of risk, basically to stay in focused on being the king. So once you're the king, you want to stay to be the king. And Madoff was the king of block trading. Madoff, when I started, first discovered Madoff, or found out about him, he was running five to 7% of the total volume of the daily stock market in the United States. That's a king. And I often said, to the SEC and everybody that would listen back in the early days once he cra crashed in December, early December of 2008, I said, if they ever find a good clean set of books and they look at the books, they're going to find, I believe, that he was taking money from the Ponzi scheme to buttress his block trading operation, which was no longer making money because mm. he wanted to remain the king. So the bottom answer to your whole question was ego. Yeah. And ego drives winners to be winners, but then to keep them there, they have to have monster egos in a way. They have to be almost narcissistic, right? To want to continue to get the, on, uh, the honorarium of, 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 of public opinion, right? Yeah, clearly, so, for sure. I, I think what I, I – I think everyone was so shocked at was the ability to keep it going for so long. And uh, I think the concept of how people like to be the, like the high school essence of the cool kid group. That is, that is part of what I feel is simplistic because that is kept it going because everybody wanted to be in Bernie's fund and have well, let, me, let me give you an example this is an absolute fact I got it right from the victim and I feel for victims I really do because um, all Ponzi schemes are affinity frauds in mm -hmm. other words you have to grant have an affinity to the prep perpetrator in order for them to, to Ponzi you in the first place and, and by the way, that happens in social organizations, that happens in professional organizations, it happens a lot in religious organizations, where you have a common belief structure, 
Um, and uh, I, I was speaking out in the Midwest one time and um, as keynote on risk management or something on post Madoff and, and the right behind me was the head of enforcement for the FBI. And right behind him was the head of enforcement for the SEC in the region. And I, so I know I stuck around because I want to hear these two yeah. pundits talk about And they were saying, as Mr. Casey said, as Mr. Casey said, and then the FBI guy stopped and he said, he said, you know, I got to tell you something. We have more Ponzi schemes in this area because of your religious beliefs and your cohesiveness of your church. So what happens is that you have to have an affinity. Now, I knew of the institutional affinity fraud. The affinity fraud was the bankers making all the money on saying, oh, Bernie, you know, saying to their central banker, they, now picture this, the big international banker saying to the central banker, hey, oh, yeah, 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 boss, we got the assets, you know, we know, now they don't have the assets. It's, it's their subsidiary in the Cayman that's got the assets. Oh, wait a minute, they don't have the assets either because their big client is Bernie Madoff and he's demanding self-control. So he's the titular head with no checks and balances. He is the administrator, he's the custodian, he is the money manager and the trader. Whereas in Goldman or someplace, you have different Chinese walls there that uh, basically they can't peer over. So there's a form of checks and balance in, in, in the whole operation. Yeah. So, um, I forgot your question. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's all because people... Oh, I know, I know, I know. I want to give you an example. Yes, yes. So, uh, there was this victim uh, one time, and he, and he approached me, and he said, uh, you know, I'm the head of the finance department at a major university. I'll leave unnamed, okay? And he says, I'm a, I lost my money with Madoff. And I said, well, what was your first common affinity? He says, I'm Jewish. And he said, um, I knew some of the other investors early in the game. Now, we being institutional people, we knew about the institutional fraud. I, I knew nothing about the individual Jewish investor community until one month before Madoff collapsed. And I'll tell you that story if you want. But it, it shocked me because I didn't, I didn't realize how broadly he was scamming his own people. And... And so anyhow, this finance professor says, I found him through my own due diligence in the process of following finance early in his development, and I gave him money, Madoff. Wow. And after a while, several years, he says the returns were great. He says, I became very nervous. This can't be. It's too good. So I demanded to cash out, and I got my check promptly. And he says, I cashed my check and I sat there and wow. And then more people that I knew were getting invested with Madoff. He says, geez, maybe I'm missing a good thing. So he says, well, I'm smart enough. What I'll do is get back in and I'll ride it until that point that I can get out and uh, I won't lose my money. So he gets back in and with more money than he had originally invested plus his profits. He follows that for a couple of years, he says, and he gets extremely nervous because the markets are getting very hot and skinny risk premia in 2005 and six. And so he cashes out and Madoff's people call him up and said, you know, you've cashed out twice. We'll let you back in one more time, but no more. You don't get the cash. If you cash out the third time, you're never getting back in. 
So he says, okay, I'm sitting there with my cash and now everybody's in. And they're all, remember, knocking the ring like they belong to the Dakota Club, the, you know, <laughs> Flash Gordon or whatever it was when we were kids. Okay. I was a kid. But, uh, you know, they all were members of the secret club. And so he said, oh, my God. He says, I went in with everything, including my kids' educational money. God. Because I lost it all. So you can be an expert in an area and overcome with greed and peer pressure. And for traders, the worst thing they can do is talk to one another. If there's a peer group of traders, I like to listen to them because they give me ideas and some traders are just so friggin' brilliant uh, in the way that they look at everything, you know, Stettelmeyer's work on volume and price and all of these other oscillators and, uh, and so forth. And some guys get it down to some men and women get it down to a trading system where they can make a living off of it. And I'll watch them for a while. But what I've learned to do is just take it in and do my own thing. And by the way, I'm a world's worst trader because I have an aggressive personality and you're supposed to be Zen. You're supposed to say, Oh, there's a leaf floating down the riverbed. And uh, you know, you're like that, that's the trade that went off to the side or whatever, and you're supposed yeah. to feel good about yourself. You knock me down, I come back up with a, uh, you know, and want to fight. And so that's the <laughs> wrong problem. That that's the wrong solution to my problem. So but that's awesome. That it's you. It's awesome, Frank. They know that about yourself. Well, I, the only time I, I ever won trading was entering a trading competition where I received honorable mention after an audited trail of a year trading futures. And uh, with an account size, it's a, you had a 90% probability of washing out. That was $10,000 trading futures. It's too small. And, um, and so, but when we came up with the trading rules, my young partner and I, my intern, I realized that I'm really bad exiting mm -hmm. because I want to fight. And so I put him in charge of the exits. Brilliant. And I couldn't interfere with the exits. Brilliant. We hit our objective. We took a profit. When we <clears throat> hit our loss, trailing parabolic stop, we were out. And I would fight them and argue and go home and miff that I missed that I should have doubled down, damn it. And the damn trade would go his way. I mean, you know, I mean, it would keep on falling. And I, and so I realized that's I know what my, my sickness is. And so uh, <laughs> my sickness is I'm a fighter. <laughs> well, I'm sorry for your trading account, but I'm grateful for the world's trading account. Because the whole world would, all of our, all of the whole, the whole system would have collapsed if he got to keep going. For he was long. cancer. He was a cancer, and we were worried about him collapsing the whole system. We got it bass backwards. The yep. system collapsed in 2007 because of all of the overlevered banks at at 50 times yeah. the risk premium. And uh, I'm sure SPVs and everything, uh, crazy stuff. They were all levered up their balance sheet, on and off balance sheets. And uh, they had to delever. And when they began to delever, they went to their trading community and they said, you know that risk is, um, margin we gave you, you know, 10 to 1, you got to cut it to 5 to 1. And all of a sudden the traders said, well, geez, I can't sell because I'm in micro caps. You know, there's no volume there. I can't sell to stock A and B and C that I better cut 50% across the board. And then all of a sudden it was all sells, no bids. And uh, then the market started cratering and they started compounding 
and so forth and so forth. So uh, Madoff was the last available cash. And people said, well, you know what? He's like an, an automatic teller machine. You know, I mean, he just produces money and he's liquid. You can get out. Might not be able to get it back in, but I got to get out, Bernie. And so he couldn't keep the ball in the air any longer. Yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing that, you know, uh, how many years was it that he was in business for? Oh, I don't know. Many years. But, uh, you know, I think I, I couldn't prove this, but I believe he was running the Ponzi schemes when he first got into business. When he was working for his father-in-law, I believe, or his, uh, who uh, was an accountant. And he was, um, I didn't know, I've never spoken to Madoff. Um, I had no desire to speak to Madoff. Um, but uh, the story goes that uh, he was trading uh, very thinly traded OTC stocks, over-the-counter stocks. And he was doing okay, and then the market crashed, and he realized that his clients, his father-in-law or whoever, gave him would be such an embarrassment. They took all his profits from trading and told them all that he had gotten them out the day before the market crashed, and wow. gave them back their money. And wow. uh, and that started. They used to call him the Jewish Treasury Bill. Honest <laughs> to God, down in Boca, because he was safe as a Treasury Bill, and so uh, I think he started when he first started he yeah. was in uh, running a, a bucket shop operation as they well, say it's interesting. I think with it he did it all the time because the answer you gave to lucas was ego and yeah that story how it all started was ego right he didn't want yeah. to look wrong so what we're probably gonna bring this to a close but frank what would your advice be you know to the sophisticated traders that listen to us to the new traders or to any Faster. What is your, you know, parting words of wisdom to them? Okay, uh, I've branched off into something new from trading, so it's applicable to trading, but it's also applicable to whether you've been a victim of a major fraud or not in your trust company or whatever. Um, I'm working on a case right now where the family was robbed of a half a billion dollars in a trust fraud over a period of. 20 years and I'm trying to, I'm using forensic accountants to figure it all out. And then I'm putting uh, lawyer teams together that are willing to bet with me on contingency against a big reward. So I'm now working on financial gunslinging and um, you know, there's no payment here. Uh, I'm hoping to God to get a hit, but um, it holds true. And whether it's that field or trading, mm -hmm. First of all, realize uh, this, this piece of logic came from Robert Ferguson, who used to be the head of um, investments for Weyerhaeuser and ran the fund of funds that I helped build the two billion. He was a genius in his day and he's still alive. But he said, Frank, no matter what the strategy, a hedge fund makes its money by finding an inefficiency in the capital market structure somewhere in the world and exploiting it. And if you find an, something to exploit, it cannot take a lot of money because that's why the inefficiency was there in the first place. So mm -hmm. if you allocate too much money to them, they'll trade themselves into efficiency. They'll be returning return, but it's all beta or all market-driven rates of return and risk. You're not getting more return for the less risk. Mm 
So that's the first thing. Realize where the trader, whether you are the trader or you're signing up with a trader, you realize what gives them the edge. And it's usually an inefficiency that that trader has picked up on in the marketplace that may be short-lived, you don't know. But if you're investing in it, don't give them too much money because chances are he'll trade them himself or herself into efficiency and remove the edge that you have. So you'll be trading without an edge. The, 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 the other thing is transparency, transparency, transparency. Uh, I mean, I want transparency in everything uh, that I see and do. I want liquidity when I can get it, and, uh, and, and, and I want client control, TLC, tender loving care, transparency, liquidity, and clients. And all, in other words, you've got to be in control. Never give up your control. And I don't believe in giving up my mind to a, you know, another human being who's going to counsel me and run me like a robot. I just don't, I, I can't go there. I can take advice from a trading coach. I can take advice just like a pro athlete will take advice from a coach or a golf pro has a coach, right? And it doesn't mean the coach is the best trader or golfer in the world, does it? It means that they know how to do it. They've studied it. And so you need to have that mirror against which to reflect where somebody's telling you, ah, Frankie, you're screwing up again because you're not doing it the way you're supposed to be doing it. So you get a good coach, whether it's your spouse or somebody, you mm -hmm. find out, you stick to transparency, liquidity, control, truth in everything. Because if you don't know yourself and you can't be truthful with yourself, you sure as hell aren't going to be truthful to the markets and, 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 and figure out the inefficiency in the marketplace that the trader is exploiting. So you understand it. It's got to make sense. Simple words, but profound words. Frank Casey, thank you so much for coming on our hey, man, My pleasure, Lucas. Nice meeting you and the continued success to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with K-Man Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.